From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to the China and the World podcast. Today, for our 120th episode of the China and the World podcast, I'm de- delighted to be joined by Doug Paul, Vice President for Studies and Head of the Asia Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Many of our listeners are already familiar with Doug. His long, distinguished career uh, working on U.S. policy in the U.S. government. Um, prior to joining Carnegie, he served in a number of government positions, including uh, our representative in Taiwan as the director of the American Institute in Taiwan. He also served in the National Security Council staffs of President Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush, first as director of Asian Affairs, working on China, and then as senior director and special assistant to the president for Asian, uh, broadly for the Asia-Pacific region. In the private sector, Doug has served as vice chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase International. He's in Beijing this week for our U.S.-China Carnegie Global Dialogue, focusing on U.S.-China relations and meeting with Chinese scholars, business leaders, students, policymakers, diplomats. Doug, it's great to have you back. It's good to be back with you, Paul. It's always interesting to be in Beijing, and these are particularly interesting times. Absolutely. And your trip here uh, takes place just days after the U.S. midterms, where we saw the Republicans increase their majority in the Senate, but they lost control of the House of Representatives. Uh, and I wanted to start uh, our discussion by asking you, are there implications of the midterm elections for the U.S.-China relationship? I think there probably are some implications, but they're not substantial and not very direct. Um, the campaigns largely have almost 500, uh, 435 congressional seats and 30-some Senate seats and a few other positions uh, around the country uh, really didn't focus on the China uh, policy issue. A couple of the campaigns uh, were based on objections to the tariffs imposed by the Trump administration on imports from China, uh, but these uh, did not prove decisive. There was no trend in the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big case of this was uh, North Dakota, where Heidi Heitkamp, who was a Democrat mm-hmm. in a very Republican state, uh, tried to make a case that uh, Trump had gone too far mm-hmm. with tariffs on China, but it didn't make a difference in her case. And so I don't think you can draw a trend out of the mm-hmm. uh, or a, a mandate out of the election results to say something directly about U.S.-China relations. But with all elections, you never know what the uh, the indirect impacts might sure. be. What President Trump might feel more beleaguered by a, a hostile house, and he may seek foreign policy remedies for some of his concerns, and China could be among those. Mm. Well, they say the next couple of years could be uh, filled with investigations and subpoenas. And uh, are you suggesting that as as a way to sort of take the focus away from all of that, that he might do more, he might be more active in the foreign policy arena? That's one possibility. On the other hand, he may want to appeal to his political base even more deeply by saying, look how tough I'm being on China. It could go positively or negatively sure. from the point of view of people here in China who might be concerned which direction he'll take. Uh, this is really a political choice. It's not cooked into the recipe of this outcome of the election. 
talking about people here in China wondering sort of what's going on with U.S.-China relations. You've heard a lot from Chinese that you've met asking you questions about Vice President Pence's recent mm-hmm. speech at the Hudson Institute, where he delivered a set of remarks on China, laying out a litany of U.S. grievances, whether we're talking about economic and trade policies, human rights violation, even religious freedom, uh, and then, of course, interference or the allegations of Chinese interference in U.S. elections. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction to the speech? And, and are Vice President Pence's concerns, in your view, shared pretty broadly in Washington? Well, my, my initial and superficial reaction to the speech was that it was kind of a declaration of a Cold War uh, for the new era on China. But on f- closer consideration and poking around a little bit in Washington, I've come to the conclusion this was really a political speech designed to condition the environment going into the election, designed to divert attention from the uh, ongoing investigation of the Trump 2016 presidential campaign over its so-called collusion with the Russians, and they were trying to divert attention to China and away from Russia. Uh, I think the speech grew beyond anybody's initial expectation, but it never grew into anything like a policy instrument. It Mm. has a long uh, list of allegations about uh, things that people are uh, in the administration are unhappy with China about, but they don't really uh, ended up, end up the uh, speech with a, a strategy or a policy outline, the sort of thing you would expect if mm-hmm. there were a new Cold War being declared with China. So really done more for domestic political reasons than to announce sort of a new policy approach with China. On the content of the speech, so the tone and the lack of policy prescriptions is... Um, one aspect, but in terms of the content, um, you know, is uh, are these concerns laid out in the speech? And as you hear from the administration, in your view, are they broadly shared by both Republicans and Democrats, or is this something very unique to the Trump administration? Well, I think the appeal of making such a speech is that it has a, a broad uh, consensus in the U.S. behind it, which is that, and Democrats and Republicans alike. Virtually every agency of the U.S. government has, over the last decade, come to the conclusion that uh, U.S. relations with China are headed in the wrong direction, and that China is trying somehow to displace the U.S. traditional role as leader uh, in the global community. So I think this is a a very um, appealing kind of speech for those people who have, over the years, rubbed up against China and come away unhappy with the results. At the core of U.S. concerns seems to be these uh, concerns on China's trade and economic practices, concerns over lack of market access here in China, intellectual property rights, technology transfer, Chinese industrial policies. But Trump seems to be more focused on the trade deficit and using tariffs as a tool. Is there a disconnect here? Is the administration using the right approach to address these trade and economic concerns? I think yeah, pretty plainly it's not using the right approach. Focusing on the bilateral trade deficit is a mathematical and economic error. Mm. Um, the, but this has been a feature of Trump's thinking for more than 30 years, and he's not likely to abandon it anytime soon. He really believes this, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's, cool hard, it's hard to reconcile a government that uh, enacts a very substantial tax cut, substantially increases the federal budget, in which case, from two directions, you're guaranteeing a much larger budget deficit. And with that, we know if you, if you reduce your savings and increase your spending, 
there has to be a remainder somewhere. And the remainder translates into trade deficits, mm -hmm. whether it's with China or Germany or Japan, all of which are large. The focus in this case is somehow on China. But the real cause is the engine of American uh, deficit, federal deficit uh, generation by choices of this administration. And it's not just this administration. We've done it over the years, but it's been accentuated by this administration, who at the same time argues that somehow this is a special circumstance and doesn't recognize that this is actually two sides of the same coin. I mean, you're reinforcing what most economists would say, which is that the trade bilateral trade deficit is not the right metric to use to look at the health of the U.S.-China relationship. But, that, but it's, it's, it's not wrong to point out that there are difficulties in trade with China, yeah. that China has not matured uh, over the years into a market economy that allows foreigners to operate as uh, uh, selling in the market or investing in the market in the same way China enjoys the, the right to do so in other countries. So it's a very unbalanced relationship, and China needs to make some changes, even if the deficit is not driven purely by Chinese domestic factors. And as I've pointed out to Chinese friends here, um, you know, there's not much that uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer will agree right. with Trump on in terms of foreign and, and trade policy, but getting tough on China on these structural issues that's one thing they can agree uh, with the administration on. The other sort of issues where we seem to be converging uh, somewhat with China are in the strategic and security realm, Taiwan, North Korea, the South China Sea. I wanted to talk to you, given your experience with Taiwan, you served there as an unofficial U.S. representative in 2001 to 2005. Uh, where... Where do you currently, how do you currently see the situation? Well, there are, um, there are a lot of frustrations on the island, and there are a lot of people in the U.S. Congress and in the U.S. administration who are very sympathetic to Taiwan's desires to break out of the binds that they've been un under in this ambiguous position between being claimed by the mainland as part of Chinese sovereignty and being protected in their autonomy by American guarantees going back to the Korean War. Uh, there's a lot that's unsatisfactory about it. Congress uh, has, for uh, quite a few years, but actively in the last year, been passing legislation which is intended to upgrade relations with Taiwan on the surface. But really, it's a way of saying they don't like China. And mm -hmm. this is a, one way of voting against China by voting for Taiwan. And that has accumulated these Taiwan Travel Act and the National Defense Authorization Act for higher levels of military and other official contacts between Taiwan and the United States. Uh, we've had uh, a new process of arms sales introduced, which makes Taiwan, which makes China uncomfortable with where the U.S. and Taiwan may go. And there's a lot of suspicion in China that Trump has something big in mind or to transform the relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan in ways that will disadvantage China's interests and sovereignty claims over the island. I think um, uh, I can understand why they're concerned. I, I see the same. I, they tend to overanalyze and draw much larger implications from what's happened than perhaps is warranted. But um, so far, the U.S. has not really crossed any red lines. Mm -hmm. They're walking up to the red lines on a lot of these issues but has been careful not to break out of the framework that was established back in 1978-79 for the United States and China effectively to neutralize Taiwan as an issue between these two powers. 
You, early on uh, in Trump's administration, of course, we, we saw President Trump almost wanting to use Taiwan as some sort of a bargaining chip. I mean, he took the phone call from President Tsai Ing-wen. He sort of said he wasn't sure whether or not the U.S. would, under his administration, would abide by the one China policy. But he seems to have shifted. What, what's your sense of where President Trump is on the Taiwan issue? Well, I have to say that in more than 40 years of being close to Taiwan-China-U.S. relations, I do not know where, where his intentions lie. Mm-hmm. But I do recognize that where he's had opportunities over the last several last year and a half to take several actions that might take the Taiwan relationship with the U.S. to a new level, which probably would be intolerable to the leadership in China, he hasn't done so. Uh, whether that's self-restraint, lack of interest, reserving a bargaining chip, I don't know the answer to those things. This is, uh, this is uh, not something that this administration cares to explain mm-hmm. in their public statements and documents. Let me shift, if I could, to North Korea. When you were here, Doug, a year ago for the Carnegie Global Dialogue, um, if you look at the North Korea situation back one year ago today, U.S. and China were actually working pretty closely on the maximum pressure campaign. Chinese frustration was at an all-time high with North Korea. They had conducted their sixth nuclear test September last year, the largest nuclear test that they had conducted. Uh, on the same day, in fact, President Xi was giving a keynote speech at the BRICS summit, which was held here in China. And then in November, the North Koreans tested this long-range intercontinental ballistic missile, the Hwasong-15, which could range the United States. Um, Kim Jong-un was isolated, hadn't met yet with a foreign head of state. Fast forward a year, uh, we now have a situation where Kim Jong-un has seems to have moved to diplomacy. He's now met the Chinese president three times, South Korean president three times, and he met the U.S. president, a North Korean objective for many years, uh, in the Singapore summit. And there's a lot of, you know, the maximum pressure campaign seems to be waning. China seems to be moving in certain directions. We're moving in certain directions. Are the U.S. and China still still aligned as we were a year ago, or are we diverging in terms of our approach to North Korea? There are elements where the alignment remains. China has been, by and large, adhering to the pretty strong uh, sanctions on North Korea. China's the principal potential trading partner, and they've cut off most forms of trade as specified under UN Security Council resolutions. Through the UN Security Council. They haven't backed off those. As far as we can tell, they've not really backed off on that. However, in the recent UN uh, General Assembly period, both the Russian and Chinese ambassadors to the and foreign ministers uh, at the UN argued for relaxation because tensions have come down some that they think there ought to be some relaxation in the economic sanctions on and North as Korea. As a means to incentivize North Korea for Correct, as to keep progress. things going along. But um, if you look back from a year ago to today, as you've been doing, um, China's been a net winner in this process. China had uh, relations going nowhere with North Korea and really uh, a confrontational approach to South Korea a year ago. Today, they've got a much improved role to play on the peninsula. The U.S., by contrast, has led has led a large uh, campaign to isolate, not through just through U.N. Security Council sanctions, but through diplomatic activity, to which there was quite a bit of global responsiveness, yeah. to now where the U.S. has been making unilateral gestures 
toward North Korea and getting really nothing in return. So I think the inter-Korean diplomacy is also another big story. The South Korean president is not really on the same wavelength with the American president. He's got ambitions for inter-Korean reduction of tensions and perhaps someday uh, eventual reunification. And he's opened the door to North Korea and helped North Korea come out of its isolation. So the U.S. has actually been the net uh, uh, loser in this process. And North Korea and China have been the net winners so far. So interesting. So in your view, South Korea has made gains through the inter-Korean talks. China has made gains. I mean, many Chinese uh, point out to me that the outcome of the Singapore summit was, in fact, the dual freeze proposal that the Chinese had been putting forward, which the U.S. had been putting pushing back against considerably. Um, And so they're quite pleased with the outcome of the Singapore summit in that it is the basically the elements of the dual freeze approach. But the loser in all of this is the U.S. in terms of not being able to make any progress on the issue of denuclearization. And why do you think that is? What's the main, what's the root cause of why Pompeo, for example, the Secretary of State, has not been able to achieve pretty much anything in that regard? I think the North Koreans have concluded quite correctly that the best way forward for them is to ignore all the subordinate officials of the U.S. and deal directly with President Trump, who doesn't seem to be guided by a compass that's really steady on how to deal with denuclearization. My concern is that we, on the present course, without some really significant readjustment, and it's apparent under President Trump that Secretary Pompeo and his new advisor for North Korean policy, Steve Began, are attempting to get the North back into a process where some of our issues can be addressed. But the North is not willing to do that. They, they want to go past these people and get right to Trump in the hopes that they'll get by with a very low-cost uh, effort to restore some kind of political and eventually an economic relationship with the U.S. and the rest of the world without ever really giving up their nuclear capabilities. Uh, one of the big concerns of Japan and South Korea, certainly maybe not the current administration in South Korea, but public opinion in South Korea, is that the U.S. will cut a deal to protect ourselves from long-range mm. missiles in those nuclear weapons, but Without leave Japan sure. and South Korea in the shadow of those missiles going forward. You know, when you talk to policy experts, when you talk to folks that have worked on North Korea issues in previous governments, there's a lot of concern, similar to the concerns that you've expressed. When you talk to the American people, you know, the guy on the street, um, Many of those folks seem to think that the situation is much better now on North Korea. Some even believe what President Trump has said, which is that this issue has been resolved. What's the disconnect between the general public in the United States and former policy experts, current policy experts who have been covering this North Korea issue uh, in detail for many years? The president occupies the bully puppet even if he's not very good at doing the kind of leadership of the nation's uh, uh, direction compared to other presidents. A year ago, President Trump was talking about fire and fury and talking about bloody nose attacks on North Korea. Today, he says, peace is at hand. We've gotten this solved. The situation has been basically resolved. And it's off the, the headlines of the newspapers. It's not a, not a big issue now in the news. People will listen to the president and... and They take his lead on whether this is a serious issue or not. There is a huge disconnect, however, between policy experts 
uh, who know this subject very well and are concerned about the North Korean uh, capacity to not only have their own nuclear weapons and to project those weapons far afield, but also perhaps to proliferate uh, those mm. weapons to terrorist groups or others. And so there's a big gap between the president and the experts, but the people tend to follow the president's lead. In addition to the proliferation concerns, of course, there's reports that even though North Korea is not testing missiles and nuclear devices, it's actually building its arsenal of missiles and developing more nuclear fuel. So one could easily make an argument that we're worse off today than we were before the Singapore summit in well, terms you, of the threat. Right. There's that. And then there's also the fact that you know we rotate our troops out to Korea every year. And if you don't train them in the field... They're not going to be very effective if a crisis develops. Absolutely. And we've given up now three major exercises in a row without any quid pro quo from North Korea. Absolutely. I served two years in South Korea, and including as a company commander, and I, I, I agree with that 100%. Doug, I want to turn to South China Sea. Last month, a Chinese Navy destroyer nearly collided with a U.S. Navy destroyer, the USS Decatur. Apparently, the two ships came within about 40 meters of one another. Americans have described the maneuver as unprofessional and unsafe. Um, are you worried about the current dynamics in the South China Sea and the potential for an inadvertent collision there? Well, I... And I ask you as a former Navy officer, right, well, by the way. I've steamed around down there. And I, I but not with a Chinese Navy that was up and running like it is today. We were basically all alone in those days back in the 70s when I was in the Vietnam War. Uh, the, uh, the pattern that's been established the last couple of years is that of increased professionalism between the two navies. American and Chinese ships on the, up and down the Western Pacific encounter each other virtually every day, and we don't have incidents. So for the time being, I'm inclined to treat this particular incident as an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. Now, if it develops into a trend, we have to talk about it and engage the Chinese sure. more seriously. And in fact, you know, while we're, we're actually making this recording, there's preparation underway for the uh, diplomatic and security dialogue to take place in Washington. This has been suspended for more than a year. Uh, that That is an opportunity directly to address mm -hmm. uh, whether or not we're dealing with a trend or an isolated incident. That and we that includes both the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State. That's correct. But that, one of the most important uh, topics on the agenda will be this incident. Hopefully, it will be this small and easily resolvable. Mm -hmm. uh, but if, if we have more of these going on, then we have to go back and recalibrate what's going on. Uh, later this month, uh, President Trump and President Xi will meet on the sidelines of the G20 meeting in Argentina. All eyes will be on that meeting, of course, uh, to see if the two presidents can do anything to cool things down. Um, and there's an increasingly a view that given the current state of tensions, it's really only the two leaders that can find a way forward. What do you expect from this meeting? Well, my expectations are fairly low. I think that the, as, as we discussed at the top of the broadcast, the podcast, the, um, the, there's no mandate coming out of the American elections to really do something. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of in, in the, for President Trump politically to keep the pressure on. China. It's a bipartisan support in the U.S. to get some real change from Chinese on how they behave in their own marketplace and how they behave internationally on trade and economic fronts 
let alone the areas of science and technology and intellectual property theft and uh, strategic competition. And so the, um, uh, there's not a big incentive to reach a large agreement. I think there's some incentive mm. to manage things for the time being. Mm. And so uh, in the I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. I think our listeners should understand. You're basically saying if they come, if he comes to some major agreement, then in some ways he opens himself up. He's vulnerable then to be criticized for the agreement. And so there's a disincentive for him to actually come to some large agreement on this. Maybe he could make some small agreement, but there's not much reason for him to solve this in any significant way. Well, another way of saying what you're, you're asking about is, you know, it's always been the um, easy thing for an opposition party to go after an incumbent administration by putting them in the position of defending relationships with awkward partners. Mm-hmm. And so the Democrats attacked George H.W. Bush for being friendly to China after the Tiananmen incident because they felt that he would be defending China and China was indefensible. Mm -hmm. So that was an easy political position to put him in. And I don't think President Trump wants to get in a position where he has to start defending a deal he makes with China if the deal isn't really a good one. So I think you're likely to see an effort to manage the tension, sort of crisis Mm -hmm. management Mm -hmm. approach, but not resolve the major issues because a resolution is too hard to get and too hard to defend. So it's different then in that context than the North Korea agreement, because there he came out with a pretty significant agreement in in the way he describes it, Um, but he doesn't feel open to political criticism on that. There there is um, a reluctance to criticize on North Korea that is not uh, something that people are willing to hold back on when it comes to China. The, the, the accumulation of grievances against China over the last decade or so has percolated through the entire American political system, Democrat, Republican, every aspect of every administration in Congress's House, Senate and House. Uh, they're all very mm-hmm. unhappy with China, and they're keeping a close eye on whatever comes out of that agreement. Korea, they tend to be quiet. They tend to leave it to the president. Uh, now, if, if he ever comes up with a a, a final uh, agreement that sort of obviously comes short, I think there'll be plenty of criticism. Or maybe if the North Koreans start developing, you know, p- t- testing missiles and nuclear... Well, I, you know, I've, I've spoken to people in the Congress, and they, they generally have been, prior to this uh, midterm election, intimidated. They don't want to have Trump turn on them and have it hurt them with their own constituencies. Uh, whether... Whether that will sustain itself as the Democratic House comes into office in January and we start encountering a drumbeat of criticism across the board from each of the relevant committees of the House, uh, I think that will probably change. Let me return to the G20. Uh, What's your sense of what the Chinese leadership is hoping to achieve from this meeting? I think the Chinese uh, are... uh, Let me me, uh, correct myself a little bit. I think the Chinese people are hoping that President Trump will put a lot of pressure on Xi Jinping to adjust the way he's been responding to these uh, issues of promoting reform internally in China and addressing through domestic reforms the complaints of the foreign community, not just the U.S., but Japan, Europe, and many other countries that invest in trade with So China. you're suggesting in one way the pressure by the United States, uh, there's a view here in China that that's actually good for China. I hear from many, many Chinese that they want outside pressure. Back back when I worked in government in the 1980s, I used to hear the 
from the Japanese that they needed outside pressure to break the logjam of their special interests at home. And I think that's very true here in China, too, that there's a logjam of special interests that's very hard for President Xi to break through, and uh, or he hasn't been motivated enough to break through. And therefore, they're trying to create that motivation through foreign pressure. In that case, I mean, can you then say that President Trump's approach has has been effective? You can say that the uh, hammering China is is better than not hammering China, but you can break your chisel to hammering China, or your hammer breaking China if you hammer it the wrong way. You mm-hmm. want to use your tools appropriately. So I think there's a lot of room for refinement in the way the U.S. puts pressure on China. Move to a more, uh, sophi- a, more sophisticated kind of approach. That's right. Because yeah. you know, otherwise you, you start damaging the tools as you try to use them on this very tough target. Before we conclude, Doug, I want to... You wrote a, a piece recently that was published in the South China Morning Post. It's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, you've been asked about it many times while you're here in China. I know a lot of Chinese have noted it as well. And in the piece, you note the difference between sort of the younger generation of U.S. officials and older generation officials, U.S. officials working on China, and the way that they view China's relative global power and influence. What led you to write this piece, and what are the implications of these changing dynamics? We were conducting some um, exercises to, with people who have recently left the government on the Chinese and American side. And the tendency on both sides to be impatient with the other and to, and to sort of throw away the old um, guideposts we use to manage relations. For example, the normalization communique or the Shanghai communique that first began our relationship back in 1972. Sort of that laid the foundation for the U.S.-China relationship. The foundational documents yeah. that, that have always been referred to by each successive administration in an effort to create guardrails within mm-hmm. which we can do a lot of our work without going off, uh, going off the main highway. People are not patient anymore. They see us, over the last decade, the experience of people who deal with China in the U.S. is one of, of, of a China that you can't be patient with. China is using its advantages, uh, pressing uh, overseas against American interests and at home, denying a, a fair competition to uh, internal market participants. In fact, unfair theft of people's technologies and forced transfers of technology. And even you know, government officials sitting across from Chinese have had their personnel files pilfered by cyber attack from China. Mm-hmm. So there's a, at a personal level, at a policy level, there's, a, there's less patience for China in this new generation than there was among people who knew China back in the old days and knew that it was crawling before it could walk and walking before it could run. These people have only seen runners, and they want to see China behave better if they're going to be in real competition. Uh, it's. I, I hope the Chinese will pay attention to yeah. this observation, and I certainly am getting a lot of reinforcement that people have noticed it. Uh, it's People are not going to say, okay, judge China by what it was 30 years ago. They're going to judge China by its behavior today. You know, we, we had recently on the podcast uh, Abby Grace, who served in the National Security Council under Obama and uh, Trump, and she made a comment that, you know, a, uh, a country that can build a skyscraper that are among the tallest and most uh, impressive in the world today in six months should be able to move ahead on its reforms uh, in in a much mm-hmm. more urgent and uh, efficient way. And I think that 
captures some of the sentiment that you're talking about. Yeah, I guess that's sort of, it's not directly irrelevant, but I, it leads me to remember that the United States was the kind of country that in 1963, John Kennedy in June of 63 announced we would be sending a man to the moon. And we had men on the moon within six years. Could we do that today? And we, we should reflect on our own uh, shortcomings and inability to pull together and try to do a better job of competing with China ourselves. Well, I agree with that. I've, I often say that an effective U.S. policy towards China begins at home and uh, getting your act together at home. And uh, so it's a good point to end the podcast. Doug, thank you very much for joining the China in the World podcast and for joining us this week in Beijing for the Carnegie Global Dialogue. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be back with everybody here. That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China in the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time.